The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Support for this show comes from John Maxwell Taylor's Gravida Award-winning performance on the life of Swiss psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung, now available in a stunning new 3D audio set. To learn more, please visit www.johnmaxwelltaylor.com. From Spirituality and Health magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today is Rabbi Rachel Cowan. Twice named by Newsweek magazine as one of the 50 most important rabbis in the United States, Rabbi Cowan was featured in the PBS series, The Jewish Americans. Currently, she is a senior fellow at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, where she had been executive director. And her new book, co-authored with Linda Thal, is Wise Aging, Living with Joy, Resilience, and Spirit. Sam Moe's interview with Rachel appears in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Rachel Cowan, welcome to Essential Conversations. Well, thank you, Rami. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you. Before we get into the book, Wise Aging, uh, give us some sense of your own spiritual life. You dedicate Wise Aging to three teachers that you and I share— Rabbis Jonathan Omerman and Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi and Sylvia Borstein. So let's let's focus on them. How did these teachers shape your spiritual life? I think that um, I don't think I know that as I I mean I converted to Judaism. I came from a very secular, left wing family, which gave me great values, but no sense of mystery um, or awe, which are feelings that are quite resonant with me. And when I met a Jewish man and fell in love with him and married him, I also had no sense of Judaism as a spiritual practice. It was stood for social action, social justice, which is where Paul and I were when we met. Over the years, you know, things happened that uh, unexpected tragedies, and the, the last one being Paul's diagnosis with leukemia when he was just... 47, and I was 46, and in rabbinical school. And um, through that experience of his illness and death, I came to understand that I needed to have a deeper spiritual life, a richer one, more interior, something that could give me hope, comfort, joy, 
And I didn't really find that in standard liturgy. And um, I didn't, I hadn't really encountered it in Judaism, although I was up until then very happy with what I had experienced. So that led me to Jonathan Omerman, and he was the first one to teach me Jewish meditation. And I, I just resonated with having a practice that was interior, that involved a lot of silence. And I, he also really helped me move in towards a new understanding of God, sort of experiential understanding, less caught up in theology and theory. And um, so to him, I'm deeply, deeply to this day indebted. And, um, and then I met Sylvia Borstein, who was at the time we met teaching Vipassana meditation, Buddhist, but she also had a very deep uh, Jewish love of Judaism, love of Jewish practice. And I asked her if she would be able to teach a group of rabbis, you know, how mindfulness practice could enrich our Judaism, and she agreed to do that. And then Reb Zalman is just a teacher, as you know, who brought so much creativity and originality and brought in Hasidic thought, and and plus he, he had a very broad view of religion and all taking from every kind of religion and contributing to them. So he expanded my my horizon, my sense of what what a spiritual life that was grounded in Judaism, but could reach out beyond what that might be like. And so those were three just crucial teachers. And then I've been lucky to have colleagues, you know, who ha- were on the same path of searching and teaching. And so we learned a lot together. And um, I just feel so blessed, you know. You know, you, you mentioned with Rabbi Omerman, uh, God experience beyond theology, something more phenomenological, something more experiential. Can you share that with us? What What do you have in mind when you use the word God? And what was your experience that you now label as an encounter with the divine somehow? Well, I think that uh, Jonathan taught me something which which he, he taught me to, to value the experience. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> Paul, my husband, was having a bone marrow transplant up at uh, Mary Hitchcock Hospital in Hanover. And Jonathan came to visit. And I said to Jonathan, I can't, I've lost it. I, can't, I don't know how to go on, and I have no idea where God is here. I've lost complete touch. I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting through every day. I'm being with this, you know, I'm being with Paul. He's being brave. I'm being brave, but I don't feel any spiritual strength here. And Jonathan did something very simple. He said, Rachel, go find a place where you would like to sit, just sit there and see what happens. And so I walked down to a dock in the in the Connecticut River that went through the town, and I sat there, and after a few minutes, just a gentle breeze came and just <clears throat> brushed by me, sort of full of the warmth of the sun and the, the fragrance of the trees and coming from somewhere unbidden to, by me, and I just said, oh, hello, this is, I'm in the presence of the divine, and 
that was all I need to just have again a sense of I'm not alone in this. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm not praying for results. I'm not praying for things to be otherwise, but I can't bear the thought of being alone. So it was it was an experience of presence that um, strengthened me again. And I think ever since then, I've really just thought of being in the presence of the divine as being, you know, at certain moments, being open to this awareness that, you know, I'm part of something that is so much larger that has no boundaries. I mean, in Hebrew, we call it Ein Sof, you know, and um, just feeling deeply part of that and um, strengthened and enriched and, you know, boundlessly increased in love and compassion. So, so he, it's interesting that that uh, he didn't give you a Jewish thing to do. He just said, go in and sit. Right. Uh, and, and the experience that you had wasn't in any way, there's no adjective there. It's not a Jewish encounter. It's not a Christian, Buddhist, Hindu, uh, Muslim encounter. So what role does religion play or, or you know in my own experience the more i have you know i don't want to overstate it but the more i have encounters with the divine however understood the less religion actually comes into it if if it comes into it at all you sort of trans at least my experience is that you sort of transcend all of these different tribal parochial things so is that was that true for you also and if if so why hold on to as I do, the rabbi title. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you how I'm thinking, and that's thinking that just continues, you know, to evolve in my in my awareness. Um, it is those moments of connection, of just dissolving into the spaceless, timeless, formless, are totally totally universal. Um, but then when I'm thinking about other things that matter, such as what is the practice that I have that keeps me open, available to that, I have found in the Judaism as it has really been developed, certainly within the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, I have found practice, I have found ways of working with phrases, I mean, not really much with the prayer book, but with phrases from the prayer book, with blessings, verses of Psalms, you know, chants. There is a comfort I have in there being in Hebrew. There is a comfort I have in the community. I feel like, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, a friend just told me a, a, a phrase he learned from his teacher, uh, which I think is a Gurdjieff teacher, but, you know, that we go around like lightning bugs, you know, flying around in the dark, and then every now and then a flash comes of light. And um, so to have some connections, some tapestry or something of which I you know, the the strands that come from the past, but that change, they're not, they're fluid, you know, 
that gives me strength. It gives me comfort. It makes me, you know, it yeah. grounds me because it's kind of, uh, whereas it's exhilarating to be not grounded, you can't, I am at least am not able to stay there. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right, can't function that way. No, I, I'm, I'm sort of on the same page as, as you are. Uh, I've had these experiences, but when I tried to articulate them to myself or others, I always fall back on, you know, my, my mother tongue, which is Judaism. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I, I understand where you're coming from. Let, let me switch gears a little bit. Cause I do want to talk about your new book, wise aging, living with joy, resilience, and spirit. So in the book, you talk about what you call the, the declinist, if I'm saying that right, the declinist paradigm. Mm -hmm. And tell us what that means and, and why that is the paradigm that's sort of gripped the West with regard to aging. I, to me, it's, it's this view that, we're, that we, we're formed to hold practically from the time that we're born, which is even as we are aging from the moment of our conception, we nonetheless believe that... Uh, Age equals decline. We don't have a word for being older that actually is an honorable word in most people's vocabulary. You know, many people have told me, why didn't you call it like, you know, graceful? No, why? You know, wise living. Why do you call it wise aging? And I said, because I'm really, what Linda and I want to do is help people see that aging is a stage of life, an important stage of life, a, a stage that offers us so much opportunity. And to pretend that we're not aging is to run away from the opportunity that's right here in front of us. I mean, Eric Erickson yeah. talked about the agenda this time. Other societies have, they value older people. They believe elders, you know, they're essential to the to the maintenance of society. So we are Yeah, just absolutely. I, I was thinking when I was reading the book of the Hindu sort of stage model of, of life, where you start out in that child student stage, and then you graduate into the parent, householder, even grandparent stage, and then you enter into the sannyasin stage, the spiritual seeker stage, which you can't do until you're in your 60s or 70s. And then even after that, there's a fourth stage where you go home to the village as the wise elder. Mm -hmm. and, and we don't we don't have that wise elder part in, in the in the secular West. I think I think you do have it in Judaism. I think you have it in Christianity and Islam. But in the West, the secular West, it's you know, it's time just to go into the rocking chair and disappear. Right, you're not productive anymore. Everything's based on what's productive, what right, makes right. what what makes income product. You know, we're all in this race to have more, be happy with what we possess and own. So, for which we need money, for which we have to work, for which we have to strive. 
used to be you could be a child, you know, and just play as a child. And now you have to start learning to right. read when you're two. And then right. And everything's on your permanent record from birth on. You know, it's it's true. And, you know, the, the baby boomer language for this. Uh, I'm, I'm about to turn 65 and I know that you're about 10 years older than I am. This in the 60s, um, I don't mean the 1960s, but when you turn into your 60s, enter into your 60s, the new lingo is young old age. Mm -hmm. And then 70, 75 is now middle old age. Nobody wants to simply say old age, right? right? Maybe when you're 85, 90, that they'll finally get around to saying, yeah, I'm old. So how do you refer to yourself? It's a great question. I, um, you know, I'm growing older. I'm getting older. I'm in my 70s. And I say the 70s does not mean the new 50s, you know. <laughs> um, it's the new 70s. And so I'm embracing the age. I'm exploring it. And um, it has, it's not like it's all, wow, great. I get to be turned 75. Woo. You know, there's a lot that comes with that. Of, yikes. Um there are challenges here and there are there's a lot of challenge simply in accepting oneself for who one is and how one is, which is true, of course, at any age. But um, there's something I, a phrase I learned from Dale Friedman, I like, which is the tyranny of still people say, oh, I can still do this. I can still mm. do that as if that were miraculous instead of saying, yeah, I do this I or I don't do that. But not to be kind of hanging on to what was, but right, being, right, right. being present with what is. Oh, I love that. The, the tyranny of still. You know, you dealt with Paul's death decades ago, and now I imagine you've, you're sort of facing your own mortality. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how are you doing that? How are you dealing with death? Well, there are two, two different ways. You know, one is the practical. What are the conversations you have? How do you think about end of life? How do you think of quality of life? How do I talk to my children about it? How do I, what do I want? And what I feel right now is that what I want, I don't want to live for the sake of having my heart continue to beat. You know, I want to have life. And even as I imagine, I read a lot about you know, Alzheimer's and dementia. And you read that, you know, people with these have times that are good. They, you know, they have a, they have a life. I don't feel the need to have that life. It's not like, shoot me. I don't want it. It's just, I feel so, my life has been so abundant. I feel that whenever it's time for it to end, it's time for it to end. And I don't want to cling to something just for the sake of clinging to it. Um, at the same time, I'm really um, trying conceptually and I think through mindfulness meditation to understand the sort of transition from life into um, return to where from whence I came. Right. Right. Let me ask you a, a sort of off the wall question, or maybe it's not so odd, but, you know, I was looking at reading the book and it occurred to me, and, th and I may be completely off with this, but it occurred to me that you're talking to a specific demographic. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about people who, who are in, you know, low income mm -hmm. poverty, mm -hmm. if, if they have the capacity to, you know, find this, this 
to, to age wisely and to live with joy, resilience, and spirit? Or, you know, if, if that's a whole different world that, that uh, you're not addressing. And I, and I hate to say this, but we've only got like a minute to, to get into that. Okay, so just briefly, I think, uh, I can't speak for them, but I know plenty of old pe- people I knew in the civil rights movement, you know, older African-Americans, people I knew in Ecuador in the Peace Corps, people I know in New York City who are not at all wealthy. It's, the, it's their spirit that keeps them going, that keeps them loving, keeps them being generous. I think everybody can develop those capacities and that's what matters most excellent excellent very inspiring that was really a perfect way to bring the conversation to a close my guest today was rabbi rachel cowan she's author of wise aging living with joy resilience and spirit you can learn more about rabbi rachel's work at jewishspirituality.org rabbi rachel thank you so much for being with us on essential conversations You are welcome, Rami. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. Support for this week's edition of Essential Conversations is provided by John Maxwell Taylor's Gravida award-winning performance on the life of Swiss psychiatrist Carl Gustav Jung, entitled Forever Jung. It's now available in a deluxe 3D audio set. To learn more, please visit johnmaxwelltaylor.com. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. And download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Karen Dendy-Smith, and Meredith Tolleson. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.